Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 25th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, scientist and writer Sean Carroll, after which we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Actually, there are two prominent scientist authors named Sean Carroll. Sean M. Carroll is a physicist. Sean B. Carroll is an evolutionary biologist, and he's our guest this week. Sean B. Carroll is a professor of molecular biology and genetics at the University of Wisconsin. He is the preeminent writer on evolution who is also doing first-rate evolutionary lab research. Carroll's new book, which came out just a couple of weeks ago, is called The Making of the Fittest, and it looks at the genetic record for evolution. I called Carroll at his home in Fitchburg, Wisconsin. Professor Carroll, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Steve. Sure. Why'd you write the book? I wrote the book because of the massive increase in information we have about how evolution works, particularly in just the last few years. And I thought that most of that information was not in the general public's hands. It, hadn't, it wasn't really even in biology teachers' hands. So um, I've been mining uh, a whole new record of evolution and, and stitching it together in story form. What do you find to be the, the general public's ideas about evolution? I think that the most common trip is the difference between mutation and selection. And that the thought that something, evolution does depend upon a process that has a random component. And that's often misinterpreted or misconstrued to mean that what's going on out there is an entirely sort of random walk. Not at all. The process of mutation generates random variation, but selection is not blind at all. Selection is definitely about the relative performance between individuals, and that's what drives the process forward. The book talks about the fact that even without fossils and without comparative anatomy, there is in fact plenty of evidence for evolution, and that evidence can be found in the genomes of every organism that's alive today. That's right, and there's an incredible quantity of that evidence. DNA as a, as a document of history is extremely rich. And so any species DNA, there's thousands of stories in there. The stories about how that species came to be, about who it's related to, and about how it's different from its ancestors. There, there are three major themes in the book. Why don't we talk about each one of those? The three major themes being some genes are immortal. They're so important, they've, they're unchanged for hundreds of millions of years. Some genes, however, stop getting used, and those begin to decay, and you have actual fossils of those genes still lying around in various organisms' genomes. And the third being that evolution, in fact, does repeat itself from time to time. So let's talk about them one by one. Some genes are immortal. Right. So if we look in any living or organism. So this could be bacteria, this could be the archaea that live in the hot springs of Yellowstone, plants, fungi, animals. There's a set of genes, maybe on the order of just a few hundred, that are found in every domain of life. And these genes encode functions pretty much devoted to the decoding of genetic material. That Those must be very ancient functions in terms of cellular life. And what I mean by those genes being immortal is that over, really, three billion years, while other genes have been changing to the point where, really, their record gets erased over that period of time, these genes have been preserved by natural selection so faithfully that we can see that shared code among all these organisms. So the reason why they're being preserved is they are so essential to function that, really, the organism can't move forward without them. They are have to be 
protected essentially from from major change. But um, most other genes do not have this role. So this this set of immortal genes is a tremendous way we can trace the history of life. Uh, give me an example of one of those. Well, one of the most fundamental jobs that goes on in a cell is the making of proteins. Um, all organisms have some steps they do in common, and the genes that encode the proteins that are involved in carrying out those steps are very highly conserved, this set of, of immortal genes. So things, for example, that are involved in decoding RNA using tRNA, that's such a fundamental step. The genetic code is universal. The components involved are uh, shared among all organisms, and the genes are immortal. All right, let's talk about the uh, the fossil genes that, that are found in genomes. These are like broken, decayed genes, but you can still identify them as former, formerly being complete genes that had an important function. Right, this is sort of the flip side of talking about immortal genes. So mutation goes on all the time, and if mutations are injurious, those mutations will not stick around in populations. Sort of in this competitive process of natural selection, those mutations get purged out of the, out of the population. But if those mutations have no negative consequences, they can stick around. They will be tolerated. And what happens is as species shift lifestyles, let's say uh, animals start living in caves, whereas their ancestors lived out in uh, open air, uh, that changes the selective conditions. And certain traits, say body pigmentation or vision, um, they're no longer maintained because there's no selective pressure to maintain them. And the genes encoding those traits for vision or for body pigmentation, those genes decay, and we find them as these fossil genes. But there's all sorts of examples of this. We humans are carrying almost 900 fossil genes, and about 70 of those have evolved just since our evolution from a common ancestor with chimpanzees. Well, one of the great examples in the book is how when organisms' vision gets more acute, or their their ability to discern colors gets better, they start to lose their ab ability to smell as well. Yeah, that's a big signature in our DNA. So um, we, other great apes and old world monkeys, have full color vision, and uh, that and that's unlike other mammals. So if you think of dolphins and cows and dogs and cats, etc., they don't have the range of color vision that we have, and there's been a trade-off, evidently, in our that's marked in our DNA, which is as we came to rely upon color vision to find food, uh, spot other members of the species, spot, of course, danger. Um, we stopped relying on our sense of smell as much for all those functions. You know, we don't go along the in the world, you know, sniffing everything to determine what we're going to do about it. Um, and the signature of that is that one of the most abundant families of genes in all mammals are receptors for, for smell, for detecting smell. You know, like a mouse has about 1,200 of these. But in our genome, half of the genes we have for detecting smell have become fossil genes. They're inactive. And that means that really our, our sense of smell has been in the process of decay for, for quite a period of time. And I think that's just the trade-off of, again, a shifting lifestyle, lifestyle that depends more on color vision. And again, we know that those used to be genes for smell because they're still close enough to those genes that are for smell in those other species, right? Right. The way to picture this is the average gene is about, say, 1,200 letters of text. And if you think of it as an analogy of, of text, this, this text has a few typos that essentially break up all of its meaning. 
But we can still see that if most of the letters are still there, that it bears the strong resemblance to some intact text in some other species. It's just that we're carrying around these sort of defective, um, you know, word word documents uh, that have accumulated over millions of years. So they're identifiable, but they're clearly uh, harboring changes that make them non-functional. And presumably, at some point, when, for example, the trichromatic vision uh, was was invented by evolution in various species. At some point, they had both, but there was no selection pressure to, to keep the the smell genes around, so they started to kind of fluctuate in, in by mutation and right. eventually decay. Right. So all genes are equally vulnerable to mutation, and mutations will, if the gene is, is carrying an essential function, most mutations will not be carried on very successfully in future generations because they compromise the performance of that individual. But if the mutation's having no effect, then the mutations can pile up. And so as we are shifting lifestyles to a color-based vision, you know, vision-driven lifestyle, um, the disadvantages of having a weaker sense of smell really were outweighed by all those advantages of color vision. And the genes went to pot. And that's just going to be statistical because you could have an, you can have individuals that had good uh, good ability to smell and good ability to see, but they didn't survive any better than the ones that only had the good ability to see. That's right. That's absolutely right. So, and in the cumulative wear and tear of time, these these functions are abandoned. And uh, another easy example, saying speaking of vision, I give I think five cases of this in the book um, when species shift to say deep water where there's very low light or to a strictly nocturnal lifestyle or as I mentioned living in caves or living below ground, we see the same genes being fossilized, those genes involved, for example, in, in vision itself. And so this theme of shifting lifestyles and abandoning former ways of life and the sort of broken pieces of DNA text left behind from that, we can see that all over the place. And that brings us into the third area pretty neatly, actually, which is the same adaptations seen in different organisms. And, and ordinarily, if you see the same, the same trait and the same genetic sequence in different organisms, the first assumption is there's a common ancestor. But sometimes you'll see in cases of convergent evolution where you get the same trait and the same exact genetic sequence, but it happened millions of years apart and maybe continents apart. Right. I'll give you, I think, maybe two striking examples. Um, some birds can see in the ultraviolet. And uh, in some cases, that's used in hunting prey. And in some cases, that's used in interactions and mating where birds are seeing reflectance patterns in feathers that we can't see. They're, they're, the feathers reflect in ultraviolet light. And that's been invented at least four times in birds. Another example I give in the book is that there's these remarkable fish down by the Antarctic in the Southern Ocean, and that water is very cold. It can reach a few degrees below freezing. And they've invented a very peculiar family of proteins that is throughout their bloodstream and their tissues that prevents them from freezing. They sort of freeze like fish sticks when they bump up against the ice. But they have this antifreeze protein, which is uh, absolutely remarkable. But now you go to the Arctic, and you look in detail, and those fish have invented their own antifreeze 10 million years apart at the opposite pole of the Earth. Um, the antifreezes actually look fairly similar, but we know from reconstructing their genetic history that these were completely independent inventions. 
So evolution does repeat itself. It's repeated itself. I'll give you a third example. In humans, one of the strongest pressures on human populations of, say, the last 10,000 years have been parasites and other diseases, um, such as malaria. And you may know that resistance to malaria is conveyed by having one mutant copy of a globin gene. The mutation is called the sickle cell mutation. So in one copy, it's protective against malaria. In two copies, it gives you full-blown sickle cell disease. So here's a case where one copy is good, but two copies is very bad. Well, that mutation has arisen five separate times in human history in different parts of Africa and the Indian subcontinent. And we know, and it's the exact same mutation, the exact same change of one letter of the DNA code in the human population. So it gives you a sense that evolution is far more reproducible than even biologists had appreciated in recent years. And you can tell that those mutations came about separately because the genetic sequences around those sequences are different. Right. We can sort of do pedigrees on the populations that carry those mutations and can tell that they arose at a different place in terms of uh, ethnic group uh, or, you know, region. And we can tell that they arose at different times from, from again, from the DNA record. The DNA record is, is both a good timekeeper and it's a good pedigree um, record in terms of the relationships of, among populations. Let me go back for a minute because some listeners might be thinking about when you said that the fish are in water, the temperature of which is below freezing. Yeah. You meant freezing for fresh water. Freezing for fresh water, right. Right. Because if you have uh, salt water, you can actually go down right. degrees further without the water freezing yet. Right. At the end of the book, you get into some environmental issues. Why did you think that fit in with this theme? Well, I, I think that when you understand that the fittest, and this book is all about the making of the fittest as we can see it uh, in the DNA record, that I think there's a perception that somehow you know current species are better than previous species and, and we're always ascending sort of in some progressive scale of evolution. But it's not really the case. Current species are just different. They're not really they're not really better, and when you understand the dynamics that natural selection can only act in the present, it can't plan for the future. Um, then we understand that the fittest is a very transient, precarious status. It's not an absolute thing at all. And why that's most significant to us is species change sort of along as as the Earth changes, as oceans change, as continents move, as the climate change, species are keeping up with this, and that's what they're adapting to. Well, we're now this huge agent of, cha agent of change on the Earth. And what we have to appreciate is the resources we depend upon, let's say fisheries in various parts of the world, uh, we have to manage those intelligently by the rules, really, of, of selection and, 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 and uh, evolution for them to be sustained. And so in the last chapter, I give various examples where we can see that intense pressure from human activity, overfishing, for example, uh, does directly affect the evolution of a population. And when too much pressure is put on those populations, they really can't keep up. We're outstripping the ability of the evolutionary mechanism to keep up, and these populations crash. You talk in the book about how just the, the size of the holes in the nets has an evolutionary impact. Yeah, this is remarkable uh, work done by some fish biologists to understand that if, if you drag a net through the ocean, the little ones that get through the net may actually flourish. So you'll see larger numbers of those species, but the ones that get caught in the net disappear. And so species that aren't of any commercial interest, let's say skates, for example, that aren't, aren't important in terms of uh, the economic value, 
you'll find that the larger skates have been pushed to virtual extinction and some smaller skates are, are thriving. Well, you might say, well, isn't that good? You know, those smaller skates are thriving. Well, no, the whole ecosystem's upside down and the very valuable animals are gone. So we have to understand that, that you know, just something like a net with a certain uh, mesh size on it is a very powerful force of selection when you drag it across the ocean. Well, that's about the most powerful selection force there is because that's life or death. That is absolutely life or death. And the escapers that get through, well, that, you know, that's a very different changed ecosystem from what was there before. And those fish populations that we've depleted to a, to an extensive degree may never recover. No matter what we do, we could leave the ocean alone and they may still not make it back. We so changed the, the balance in their uh, local areas. Well, it's really a terrific book, The Making of the Fittest by Sean Carroll. And the, the subhead is DNA and the Ultimate Forensic Record of Evo- Evolution. So you got a little CSI in there, too. Yeah, sort of CSI Planet Earth. Sounds good. Sean Carroll, thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. For more info about Sean Carroll and the book, check out his website, www.seanbcarroll.com. That's S-E-A-N-B-C-A-R-R-O-L-L. An excerpt from the book is scheduled to be up at his website by the time you're hearing this podcast. And in the coming months, Sean will start contributing what's scheduled to be a series of feature articles for Scientific American magazine, so keep on the lookout for those. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a candidate for office suggested that all students be given thick textbooks to use as shields in case of a school shooting. Story two, microbes living deep underground in South Africa are dependent on chemical reactions driven by the energy given off by radioactive uranium rather than by photosynthesis. Story three, a study finds that blue-eyed men prefer brown-eyed women, apparently because they're evolutionarily driven to enhance their offspring's genetic diversity. And story four, they used to call it the freshman 15, referring to the 15 pounds kids would allegedly gain during their first year of college. New research at one big college found that the weight gain was on average about half that. Time's up. Story one is true. A guy running for superintendent of schools for the state of Oklahoma suggested that students be issued thick textbooks for use as shields in the event of a school shooting. He showed videos of a calculus textbook stopping a pistol bullet, but not stopping a rifle bullet. Nevertheless, he's sticking to the book as shield idea. Story two is true. A community of microbes has been found deep underground that depends on radiation from uranium as the foundation of the local food web. For more, listen to the October 23rd daily podcast, 60 Second Science, at www.siam.com slash podcast. And story four is true. A study of over 900 students at a big Midwestern university found that the freshman 15 pounds is more like eight. The gain is probably due to stress and the availability of alcohol and high-fat foods. Just a thought, some kids might still be growing, too. For more, check out the story on our website's news section called Students Gain Wisdom and Weight in College. All of which means that story three about blue-eyed men preferring brown-eyed women is totally bogus. Because a new study shows that blue-eyed men prefer blue-eyed women, perhaps because eye color can reveal paternity. And if a blue-eyed couple has a brown-eyed baby, well, somebody's face is going to be red. Brown-eyed men cannot tell paternity by a child's eye color. And the study found no eye color preference among brown-eyed men. For more, see the story at our website called Blue-Eyed Men Prefer Blue-Eyed Women at www.siam.com slash news. A brown-eyed girl.
A couple of notes. Our baseball mathematician from two weeks ago, Bruce Bouquet, had the Mets over the Cardinals, but a Met win wasn't in the cards, so Bouquet's probable winners are now just one for six in this postseason. He has the Tigers with a 56% chance of winning the World Series over the Cardinals. That series stands at one game apiece as we go to press. Also last week, Robin Morantz Hennig discussed a PBS program on test tube babies based in part on her book and Scientific American article, Pandora's Baby. The PBS website says that the entire program should be available online by the time you're hearing this podcast. That's at www.pbs.org. For more Scientific Americana, check out our science video news at our website, Siam.com. You can sample the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, at the website and at iTunes. And you can write to us at podcast at Siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Shut up.